You're listening to Fighting Terror, the podcast that explores the approaches to fighting terror and extremism in the U.S., Europe, and worldwide. With Lucinda Creighton, Senior Europe Advisor to the Counter-Extremism Project and former Europe Minister. This podcast is brought to you by the Counter-Extremism Project, a research and advocacy group that combats the activities of terrorist and extremist groups globally. Hello and welcome. Today I am joined by Joshua Fisher-Birch, a research analyst at the Counter Extremism Project. Joshua focuses his research on the violent extreme right, as well as the role of technology in relation to terrorism. He is the author of numerous articles and reports on the latest trends and developments in the extreme right. Joshua, you are very welcome to today's podcast. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Well, thank you for joining us. So I'm really looking forward to this discussion because this is a hot topic at the moment. Um, I think where I would like to kick off is by asking you to help me set the scene here, Joshua, in terms of the current state of extreme right online in the US and indeed beyond. We're really interested to hear from you just in terms of where the far right stands at present. I think to many of us, it seems as though the far right is on the front foot, uh, appears to be growing in strength uh, online and, and in reality as well. And it seems to be quite agile in terms of how it has adapted to particularly the online world, social media platforms, et cetera. So Joshua, through your work within CEP, you're obviously following all of these trends uh, in a lot of detail. Maybe you could share with us your observations on the evolution and the rise of the far right in the online ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. So here in the U.S., to start with, I mean, there's a long history of extreme right and violence by the extreme right. And, you know, in various parts of the far and extreme right. So with, you know, several generations of the Ku Klux Klan, the militia movement in the 1990s, citizen movement, various white supremacist and neo-Nazi movements, the Oklahoma City bombing. You know, in 2009, there was the an increased number of white supremacists and hate groups in the United States during the election of Barack Obama as sort of a, a reaction to that. And then in the last four years here in the U.S., there was also there has been a rise in the number of right wing extremist groups for, you know, for, for a variety of different reasons. And really, when it comes to the online space, the Internet has been extremely important for the extreme right for the purposes of communication, fundraising, and recruiting, and really, additionally, for networking. So, I mean, there are so many parts of the internet that are incredibly positive, allowing us to develop friendships through social media, the ability to instantly share videos, podcasts, books, you know, all sorts of content. But this has also benefited the extreme right as they've sought to create and build national and internationally based organizations recruit and fundraise. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and then kind of beyond this, you know, it really varies by by ideology, because when we say far right or extreme right, these are you know very broad terms. And then there are sort of these differences in the way that that these different groups use the internet 
and their approach to it. And part of this has to do with what they're allowed to get away with on different platforms. So certainly, you know, if a large social media company cracks down, it's going to cause people to, you know, to go somewhere else in order to continue their activities. So really, I mean, the last few years, I mean, there's been this, on one hand, there's been growth of neo-Nazi accelerationism. And this has been crucial with this have been forums such as Iron March and Fascist Forge. People have spread ideological texts and used these forums to recruit. And they've also kind of become these, you know, almost like these crucibles for, for people who go to these sites, who kind of interact with this online subculture. Comparatively, you know, for, for other groups and movements like QAnon, YouTube and Facebook have been incredibly important for their growth. Because this is also a movement like this, you know, it's far more nebulous. It's much more difficult for, uh, for these platforms to crack down because it's the difference between maybe people who belong to a very specific group that has a specific set of symbols and texts and the way that their propaganda is designed. Uh, you know, so for instance, to take, you know, the Iron March fascist forge examples versus you know, for a movement like QAnon, I mean, it's, we're talking about individuals who subscribe to this, who spread propaganda, who watch and repost videos, who post essays, and things of that nature. So it's it's much more difficult for platforms to to kind of crack down on that type of behavior, really, when it comes down to individual actions like that. It's really interesting. I mean, you've alluded to the the fact that there are a range of different organizations and, you know, with different levels, I suppose, of extremism, which presumably makes it challenging to monitor, to evaluate the the threat from all of these organizations. I think I would have a sense that perhaps the extreme right, far right is, is more developed and better organized in its online activities in the United States than perhaps in other countries or other regions. Would you, would you agree with that? Or is that what you've seen through your research? I mean, that's a really interesting question. I'll say, uh, it, you know, it's very hard to quantify. There, there's sort of, there, there are definitely differences in, you know, the American scene versus in Europe. But it's definitely kind of hard to quantify to say that, you know, that, that the U.S. scene is, is more organized because part of the problem with looking at groups and movements on the internet is that, it, you know, it can be difficult to kind of see below the iceberg to see what else is there. So in some cases, um, you know, because you, you're looking at what's on the clear net, and then in some cases, what are on forums, what's going on in chats and channels on a program like Telegram. And then kind of beyond that, there are also aspects where the dark net comes you know, into play. But it's, uh, you know, so certainly, you know, there, there are European groups like the Nordic Resistance Movement that have been very active online and have you know, have been able to use various aspects of the internet to operate their website, have podcasts, and really interact and network with with others in Europe and around the world. But, you know, and at the same time, you know, there, there there are a few borders on the internet. So really, when it comes to content and groups and movements that start in one country, they're really going to expand to other, you know, if their ideology, if their ideas are attractive to others around the world. So, you know, a good example would be groups in Europe that have been inspired by the same ideological principles of the Adam Waffen division, 
And, you know, and so groups that have kind of come from that, that have organized in the UK, Germany, other countries, um, you know, and then there's also the growth of QAnon in Europe. One big difference is that, you know, there are laws criminalizing hate speech in the US, which allows for individuals to create and spread propaganda and organize in ways that would be difficult and in some cases illegal in some European countries. So I think that there it's well to kind of look at the US in some ways as as an exporter of right-wing extremism as a result of this. And you know, I mean also so much of this kind of comes down to not only groups, but it comes down to you know important individual propagandists who are thought of highly in their specific movements. And so the respect that they garner in Europe and also you know around the world really, really impacts that. I think you've uh, touched on a, an interesting concept, the you know the idea of sort of importing some of the ideology or some of the thought into Europe and other other countries around the world. And while you've mentioned the the sort of diversity in terms of the different groups, there does seem to be a kind of a convergence of ideology, you know, in the sense of these groups rallying around certain concepts, race under threat, white supremacy, anti-Semitism, anti-Islamism, and rallying around conspiracy theories and apportioning blame, et cetera, to certain ethnic groups. Yeah, absolutely. I, and so, I mean, it, I think it's important to note that extremists love exploiting a crisis and they will be more successful in doing that when there isn't consistent messaging from the government because it allows for information gaps. Um, and that's been you know, a big issue in, in the United States. In addition to that, it all kind of comes down to the way that different groups, individuals and movements can utilize conspiracy theories, can create propaganda, in some cases also can kind of try and exploit ideas that they might not necessarily believe in, but as a way to try and inflame the situation or kind of bring people over to their cause. So to give you an example, in I believe it was mid-spring of 2020, you know, there was propaganda put out by neo-Nazis on specifically through Telegram, kind of talking about how they should latch on to uh, the the anti-5G movement. And in these documents, they said, you know, well, we, we, we don't really believe in this, but we think that this is a useful lens for looking at the situation. And from the kind of the broader five anti-5G movement, this is something that we should uh, really be paying attention to and try and insert ourselves into that conversation. That's something that is incredibly dangerous. I mean, especially in the online space, because, and you're absolutely right, that while the, a lot of these groups and movements and ideologies are incredibly different, there are these spaces where they are able to converge and where they are able to kind of play off of one another. And in some cases, one might exploit what the others believe to try and further spread their, their message within this broader internet propaganda conspiracy theory world. It's really interesting to see how those common narratives are coming together great degree of opportunism in this. To look a little bit then at how 
the internet through the various platforms, chat rooms, um, messaging channels, etc., facilitates all of this. You know, I think this is the this is the phenomenon which has grown exponentially. Obviously, over the last several years, um, has been seized by all sorts of groups to you know propagate their own messages, but is also continually evolving and changing. So, I know you spent a lot of time really examining this and scrutinizing it. How do these different platforms play their part then in allowing these organizations to recruit and to network and spread their message? Sure. And that's, you know, that is an incredibly important question. So whether we're talking about individual propagandists or groups or kind of even these broader movements, you know, they're they're all looking for places where people congregate online, where they can go to spread this message where they can go to get people to read their books, their essays, to watch propaganda videos, or in some cases where they control others and sort of try and bring people over to, you know, not the people they're trolling, obviously, but, you know, people who might be watching to try and bring people over to their point of view. So various online platforms, you know, have really played a, a huge role in this. I mean, wh- whether it's, you know, Facebook or Twitter or, you know, in some cases, Instagram. I mean, so it's part of this is, I mean, kind of what it comes down to is that not all, but many groups are looking for places where they have this captive audience and where they can reach the the largest number of people, but then becomes incumbent on, on these platforms to find out which groups are violating their terms of service, how to remove them from the platform. And then once that happens, you know, it sort of begins this whole process again. So, you know, a good example would be several years ago when members of various neo-Nazi and white supremacist ideologies and the alt-right were, you know, many of them were kicked off of Twitter. So they went to, you know, Telegram, which is a, you know, which is also, you know, a massive platform. They, you know, they recently reached 500 million subscribers. Kind of comes into these, the first platforms and then the secondary platforms. And then beyond that, it's really all about staying online, continuing to spread propaganda to their community. Also, a lot of these propagandists and, you know, these groups have to keep putting out propaganda um, and have to keep trying to spark conversations in order to stay relevant. If they, you know, are having trouble staying online, if, for instance, they only have a website that does not get many views per month, they're, they're really going to try to reach out kind of as a way of survival and as a way of, of continuing to stay relevant. So there are all of these different aspects around kind of the struggle of these groups to remain online, to remain relevant, to go places online when, when they are removed from one platform. And examples of this, you know, you have, so as I mentioned, with neo-Nazis, white supremacists, and other parts of the alt-right that were removed from Twitter and went to Telegram. More recently, uh, kind of with the events around January 6th, you know, adherents of the QAnon conspiracy who were, you know, deplatformed in some cases from Twitter, who then went to Telegram or some other platforms, you know, that kind of leads to this new infrastructure then on, on that platform for them to, to congregate, to spread 
propaganda, to share information with one another. And then that also creates opportunities for people from other groups to spread their propaganda to those other communities as well, or in some cases to try and um, provoke them to committing, whether it's acts of violence or to try and get them to leave their specific conspiracy, you know, or extreme right community to, you know, to join a different one. And I think it's worth mentioning, not all of this, not all of this is genuine, that in many cases, so to give you sort of go back to the QAnon example, there were uh, several different neo-Nazi and white supremacist groups that even six months to a year ago, didn't want to have anything to do with with QAnon adherence. You know, they said that we are anti-system. People who believe in QAnon are pro-system. They believe in a twisted sense of the U.S. government. They believe in it's frequently seen as being insufficiently anti-Semitic. And so while these neo-Nazi groups previously wanted to have very little to do with them, when there's this kind of platform upheaval, when QAnon adherents have moved to Telegram, you know, in some cases, neo-Nazis have seen this as an opportunity and not in a way to say we believe that we will convince them that what we believe in is true and correct. But this idea of, well, maybe we can appeal to them on some level and maybe we can start the process of getting them to adopt parts of our way of thinking in some cases or in other cases with other neo-Nazis, the idea of this is a fragile community and we can provoke them. The idea that we don't care about them, we don't care about what they believe in, but we see that, you know, we think that we can provoke them into taking some type of action and we believe in destabilizing the system and, you know, this is a movement that we can use to destabilize that system. That's really interesting. From what I saw from afar, um, looking at the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, was that it was just an amalgam of all of these groups. I mean, and I guess individuals and Lone Rangers and, you know, it seemed to be a real mix of uh, different aggrieved groups and organizations and individuals came together for the purpose of protest and not necessarily because all of their views are aligned. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, you know, in, I mean, the, the capital insurrection on January 6th is, you know, a great example of one of the worst case situations. But I think that is also kind of a good example of the threat that both the far and extreme right presents in the sense that it's exactly as you said, there is this sort of like large amalgamation of, of different groups and individuals and different ideologies present. Uh, but it's also so, you know, you had people who went who were extreme supporters of, of President Trump, followers of the QAnon conspiracy, individuals who belong to militia groups and kind of the broader militia movement. And then individuals who are, you know, very few, but some individuals also who are part of white supremacist groups. And that with these, you know, this sort of very broad event and kind of the, this, these broad ideologies and these different individuals who are there who are able to kind of push one another to storming the capital and taking action and the way that all of these ideologies and groups together, you know, they do, you know, they present a threat, especially 
as you know this the singular day, but also more more broadly to sort of see that the way that they play off of one another and that the way that they can come together in you know a momentary alliance, even though they have very different views, but that there is there there's real risk that comes with that. Yeah, absolutely. One thing that interests me, the profile of individual um, who's attracted to these groups and even the fact that, you know, different uh, right wing, far right, extreme right organizations are sort of targeting some of the same people. I mean, through your research, have you have you found the, the sort of the the, the perfect profile of somebody um, who's, uh, you know, ripe for recruitment to these uh, organizations or to these movements? Or is it is it a bit more diverse than than we might think? Sure, I, I'd say that it's definitely more diverse than a lot of people think. That being said, it, you know, it really depends on the specific group or movement. So, you know, I can say that the things that I've been surprised by, for instance, in looking through uh, looking through online forums for accelerationist neo Nazis, there have been far more people claiming to be from outside of the US or Europe than I would have thought. So seeing more people uh, claiming to be from Brazil, for instance, you know, that's something that I really wasn't expecting kind of going into that. But then kind of beyond that, especially kind of looking at conspiracy movements like QAnon, I mean, they're really, it is very difficult to kind of put down, you know, the profile of someone who will follow that movement and consider themselves a hardcore supporter because I mean there are there are people who, you know, have been, you know, in some cases have been lifelong conservatives. In some cases, there are people who have been lifelong liberals, people from all parts of the the economic spectrum, the political spectrum, differences in age, differences in education. So it, it is a lot more complicated in that regard. You know, uh, kind of going and looking at some of these other groups as well. I mean, the militia movement is also, you know, much more focused. I mean, if you look at, for instance, people involved with the militia movement who were part of the Capitol insurrection on January 6th, I mean, they tended to be a lot older than many people in neo-Nazi movements in the U.S. or the Proud Boys, for instance. You know, the militia movement tends to skew a bit older with people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. But then, you know, you also kind of over the summer of 2020 with the rise of what's known as the Boogaloo movement and sort of people who maybe several years ago would have been attracted to elements of the militia movement, you know, that's a group that's tended to skew much younger with people in their in their late teens and early 20s and up, you know, up really until their, their mid-30s, roughly. So... It really depends on it depends on the group. It depends on the way in which those individuals use the internet. I think it's a big part of it. Where those people congregate online, and sort of beyond that, uh, you know, other other divides, um, urban versus rural, and sort of you know the uh, the sense of people's view for what how, you know how they want to see the country kind of is is a big part of that and i think that there's a lot more cynicism amongst younger people uh in regards to the direction that they think that the u.s has been moving in and will continue to move in. Mm-hmm. really interesting i mean I, I certainly the the range of individuals that you identify there you know and going through the different some of the different um, movements. It's it's fascinating actually to see the range, and uh, uh, I think um, that makes it an even greater challenge in terms of trying to counter some of these 
these narratives and countering some of the the recruitment processes, certainly for policymakers, it presents quite a big challenge. Joshua, I think, um, you know, we've seen um, a lot of this online uh, organization and the the ramping up of online activity uh, and the growth of the far right online. And we have started also to see how that now manifests in, in real life attacks whether it's the attack on on the Capitol, which we've already discussed on the 6th of January, or whether it's some of these really violent lone wolf attacks, um, as we saw in El Paso, Texas, as we saw in Christchurch, and just, I suppose, the extreme violence and the, the objective, which seems to be to inflict, you know, the most death and destruction possible and then notoriety that arises from that have have you seen trends around this and what's your take on on how it's developing sure so i mean there's been a trend um in in the last year i'd say for individual propagandists and as well as kind of small groups to you know encourage action in the real world and specifically kind of what i mean is that there's been uh further criticism of what they would call keyboard warriorism that rather than rather than create a telegram channel and create propaganda videos and try and kind of build this large following there have been you know a number of individuals who promote violence who have said you know well that that's not enough that's not going to create this change that we we are hoping to see um, there's also been, you know, there's been a trend against larger international or national groups in the U.S. After the arrest of several individuals in January of 2020 who were members of a group called The Base and the arrest of members of the Adam Waffen Division in the U.S., there have been people who are sort of part of that broader community, you know, who have said that you know, we should be organizing in the real world, but we should also be organizing really with one or two or three other people. We should be keeping this small. We shouldn't have a name. We shouldn't have a symbol that we organize under. Just sort of just kind of push towards that while also preparing for what they view as system collapse. Uh, kind of going going also kind of to touch on the point of Christchurch attack, you know, it's, I mean, part of this has to do with online subcultures from, you know, various different sites. So Brenton Tarrant, you know, the Christchurch terrorist in his attack, I mean, he was kind of following ideas put out by, you know, the Norway attacker, Anders Brevik. And as a member of the 8chan community on their politically incorrect board, you know, Tarrant directly wanted to inspire others to commit further acts of violence. And kind of the way of doing, you know, so in the way he went about doing that was by putting these sort of in-group jokes, memes, and phrases into his manifesto, kind of going about doing this in a way to allow for, you know, the maximum spread of, of both his manifesto and his video. And really kind of as a way of, of signaling to others that and others in the same kind of online community that this is something that they should do. And it's something that others, you know, with additional attacks in Poe, California and El Paso, Texas, where individuals who were part of the same board on 8chan, you know, they were kind of following this model. And, you know, this is something that continues to be a danger. I mean, I think that while 
it's something that people became, you know, very aware of very quickly. And, you know, 8chan had problems staying online and then rebranded. There continue to be similar types of website image boards on, on surface web, on the dark web that continue to encourage attacks and continue to kind of create this, what they hope will be this kind of violent white supremacist community. Yeah, and I mean, this is a threat which has long been out by um, not just smaller, more niche uh, platforms and channels, but also obviously the, the biggest social media and tech platforms in the world. You know, I think the Global Internet Forum to Counter Terrorism was established by the biggest tech companies in the world four or five years ago. And, you know, arguably that hasn't reaped any reward in terms of really stamping out this extremist activity online, which, you know, then is is manifesting in in um, in real life attacks. Christchurch being a good example of that because the entire attack was live streamed from your own research. You were able to demonstrate that that video was available days, weeks and months uh, after it occurred on all of the main social media channels. So, you know, I think sometimes policymakers try to suggest that it's a problem on some of the niche platforms or channels, but actually it's still very much a problem on the mainstream social media platforms, is it not? Yeah, it it definitely, um, you know, following the Christchurch terrorist attack, it did continue to be a problem on on a lot of, you know, the more mainstream platforms. I think that these problems are you know, incredibly complex and that even for, you know, a single event like the Christchurch terrorist attack, Facebook um, and others, you know, they they are going to have problems keeping this content off of their platform. Because I think part of this is that, you know, extremists hoping to spread footage of the attack are going to do everything they can to try and evade, you know, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Someone else. They're going to try to invade, evade their content moderators, whatever software they're using. I mean, it's the idea of, you know, Facebook will build a 50-foot wall and someone will build a 51-foot ladder. So I think that part of the problem with this is that, you know, extremists will look for ways to exploit whatever platform they are using. And eventually, you know, they are going to find a way to get out in front and do something that that platform is not prepared for. And you raise an interesting point kind of about, you know, mainstream platforms, but then also smaller platforms here. And there is the issue of content being removed from Facebook, but continuing to exist, you know, all over the internet, for instance, whether it's on Telegram, whether it's on, you know, alternative social media platforms favored by by right-wing extremists. And, you know, that's also going to create problems for, for these mainstream social media platforms in the sense of um, content that will, you know, links being posted, sort of the inability of keeping things just really, I mean, off their platform because you can always link to it somewhere else. The idea that you can always have it on, you know, cloud storage somewhere and you can always kind of post that. So it, it, it will be this sort of continuing problem going forward. Yeah, I I think there are so many challenges around removing this type of content and and trying to control its dissemination online. We saw in the aftermath of the uh, attack on on the Capitol that 
obviously a number of high profile uh, leaders of of some of these organizations, um, many of whom were physically present at the Capitol on January 6th, uh, as well as the the then president of the United States, had their accounts suspended or deleted by uh, Twitter and, and other platforms. Do you see that as a positive? Do you think it's the right approach? Should these companies be making those calls themselves or should there be clear criteria that's perhaps mandated by legislators or policymakers rather than the tech companies themselves? That's an incredibly complicated question. And I think that there, there are several different answers to that. I think that it's incredibly important that the tech companies create a robust terms of services and that they enforce those terms of services uniformly across the board. I also think that it would be helpful, you know, there are certainly some companies have created oversight boards. I think that individuals should also have the right to challenge after they've been removed whether or not that removal is is justified. I'm not sure the way that that should look. I'm not sure the extent to which you know, maybe if someone posts the Christchurch attack video, I don't know if they should have the, the right to appeal that. But I do think that there has to be some sort of ombudsperson situation to conduct oversight. And there, there have been a number of smaller platforms that have created boards to kind of adjudicate strikes against individuals on their platforms. Um, it's unclear how well that actually works. But I, I really think that kind of the, the best possible scenario will be tech companies setting their own terms of services and then following those terms of services. Now, the problem with that is when it comes down to that enforcement. And I think there are very few companies out there that will consistently enforce their terms on all different types of content all the time. Uh, I mean, part of this is that it's also... I mean, the issue is that are they going to be doing this just as much next month as they are today, for instance, when far-right extremism is maybe seen as less of an issue? You know, or maybe that's six months, maybe that's a year. You know, the issue is going to be, are they potentially willing, you know, willing to, to put up with the problems that arise from sort of this constant moderation? Yeah. And I guess there's a risk that, you know, I suppose building on that point that if you focus on one one particular threat at this point in time, that you perhaps create opportunity for, for other types of extremist groups or terrorist groups to develop their uh, networks online, you know, below the radar while uh, while the focus is elsewhere. But that that's really interesting. Just looking at, I mean, this is also a kind of a, a big question and um, I don't expect you to have all the answers, but curious to hear your thoughts in terms of methods or potential responses or solutions to the growth of, of the far right online extremism. Are there methods or narratives or other policy responses that might help, um, you know, not just focused on the removing content that is deemed to be extremist or harmful. Curious to hear your thoughts on some of those those issues. Sure. I, I think, I mean, the first thing I want to say is that, yeah, I mean, content removal is only going to go so far. I mean, because this is a supply and demand problem. You know, if people keep putting that content out there, you you can only remove it so many times in so many different ways before they figure out how to get around that. If, you know, the individual posts, you know, neo-Nazi propaganda 10 times per day and, you know, you remove 
10, then 9, then 8, then 10 again, you're not addressing the real problem there, which is that individual who is putting that out there. So there has to be you know, a, a real world response as well. So and this is where things get even more complicated in dealing with that. So you, for instance, you raise the issue of domestic terror laws in the US you know, that might criminalize certain groups. So I, I think that there's really a danger in, in doing that in criminalizing speech in the US, criminalizing you know, nonviolent political activity. Anything that the US government does to, to address the problem of domestic extremism also has to comport with US law and the Constitution. So I, I think that kind of as things are right now, that really just the federal government, you know, from the importance of fighting domestic extremism. And so replacing that importance then on, you know, the Department of Justice, Homeland Security, State Department and others to sort of have this, you know, whole of government approach towards fighting that threat, um, I think is really the best way to address this. And that once that focus is there, that the U.S. government will be able to further crack down on on these groups. So, I mean, to use an example, um, you know, members of, of two extremely troubling neo-Nazi organizations, uh, the base and Adamoffin Division. Many of their members have been arrested in the, in the last two years, you know, after, after they have committed crimes. So the FBI says that they don't investigate ideology, they investigate crime. And as a result, you know, both of these groups have are, you know, really no longer exist to the same extent that they used to. And that was done without you know, domestic terrorism laws. I think beyond that, there, you know, there are several other things that would be incredibly useful for for dealing with this problem. Uh, you know, one of this would be mandated hate crime reporting at the state, local, and tribal level for law enforcement agencies. I think mandated hate crime reporting would lead to kind of a greater picture of the extent of the threat posed by the extreme right in the U.S. and by kind of looking at that data, looking at to see where attacks are occurring, by which individuals, by which groups, and then the government will be able to better allocate resources. You know, additionally, um, the Department of Homeland Security has the um, Targeted Violence and Terrorism Prevention Program, which gives grants to localities, uh, so states and cities and grants for kind of responding to extremism. So kind of helping communities kind of try and deal with this problem and create solutions, you know, is incredibly important. And then beyond that, there also has to be some method of oversight, you know, to ensure that these programs are functioning the way that they should, that individuals are working on these programs, that they are achieving results before kind of going beyond that. And then, so, you know, as a much more long-term solution, I mean, just sort of better media literacy, civics classes, these are things that would be incredibly useful in the United States for improving the quality of becoming involved in extremist groups and kind of getting involved in, in conspiracy theories as well. There's also kind of this question of what really, what is the government's role in all of this as well? And there is that line between, you know, arresting people and prosecuting people who have violated the law versus, you know, what is the government's role in terms of, you know, what is essentially speech? You know, individuals are free to believe whatever they want. So I think that that's a discussion that, will be happening more and more in the US. I think that there, you know, there are a lot of issues that we're dealing with as fallout from January 6th, but also from the last four or five years. And I think that there are 
going to be um, difficult conversations and kind of different ways of, of looking at this in terms of how we move forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, some towns and cities in Belgium, for example, where, um, you know, this kind of local community-based intervention, you know, community groups, social groups working with policing, um, police force uh, has actually been really successful in averting and preventing the radicalization of, you know, potential targets and vulnerable people. So I think there's a lot that we can learn from each other and around all of what you have just outlined. So, Joshua, I know you were involved in a, a really interesting study um, for CEP, which was uh, was commissioned by the German Foreign Ministry, and that looked at the internationalization of this problem and the nexus between a range of different countries. Um, what were the key findings in that? I mean, are you seeing uh, transnational trends here? Is this becoming more of a factor in the online uh, dimension of, of right-wing extremism? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, so what we found was that various parts of the American and European extreme right have really been increasing their their connectivity. And this has been based around shared ideology. It's been around events primarily in Europe related to music festivals, um, related to sport. And that these are really points of convergence for for both movements. There, you know, there have been groups in the U.S. that have also looked at their European counterparts and have said, you know, we want to adopt what you know what groups in Europe have been doing in the you know in the mid two thousands and later, which is more of a focus on building a sense of counterculture to kind of create something which they can then recruit from. And something that, that they can really be build bridges to Europe and then be that conduit. I mean, another aspect of this are sort of like alliances between groups in the US and Europe based on based on fundraising, based on you know who sells clothing made by other groups. More broadly than that, too, is like what what narratives really have these kind of cross-border currency. So for instance, there have been events in the US and Europe um, where through kind of this broader movement, um, the propaganda is all of a sudden, you know, it's in France, it's in Serbia, and it's in the US. And then beyond that, I mean, it's sort of, I mean, it's one of the the problems with, with the internet is that Content that is created by individuals in one country, you know, can appeal to those all over the world. Forums that had their basis uh, or had you know, many of their users were in the U.S. Um, also have built followings in Europe, and so really, there this is sort of moving towards more of a transnational, broader movement where individual groups can kind of find meaning and can kind of exchange tips and network. With, with others around the world. So transnational aspect is incredibly concerning and especially even more so um, looking at conflict zones around the world. So looking at Ukraine, both European and also American groups see opportunities in a conflict like that, um, whether it's to gain combat experience or whether it's sort of to be some sort of conduit for funneling recruits to that conflict zone. 
So internationalization of these movements is, is something that is incredibly concerning in, in the long run. That's fascinating. So, I mean, you're obviously seeing then greater potency in terms of the testing the messaging and um, and identifying across uh, borders, but also um, it's becoming a channel for recruitment to conflict zones, which is, I think, presumably a cause for concern for intelligence agencies, for security agencies. Um, so definitely a, a real cause for concern and an important piece of research, I think, um, from you and your colleagues. Perhaps just to uh, to begin to conclude our discussion, might be useful to look ahead. So I think we've seen a lot of your really valuable and interesting research into how the far right and extreme right has developed its ecosystem online and how that is translating into real world attacks and violence, which is obviously deeply concerning. But in terms of how you see it evolving in the future, are you hopeful? Do you, you know, are you resigned to the fact that uh, these organizations, these groups, these movements will always be sort of one step ahead in terms of the technology, you know, or, or do you see, you know, potential to reduce the online recruitment and radicalization of people in the United States? Looking ahead, I mean, kind of, again, kind of looking at, I mean, on one hand, there's the supply problem and all of this as it exists in the online space is going to be deeply impacted by what happens with the state of polarization, with economic inequality, with social justice movements kind of in, in the US and also, and then the far right's response to that. I think kind of kind of like looking at looking at the online space, I think it is going to be increasingly difficult to monitor and these groups and movements and also to really kind of keep track of, of where they're going. And, you know, part of this is sort of, again, kind of kind of looking at the issue of um, kind of the constant production of, of propaganda, the way that these groups and individuals within these movements are trying to really kind of build an audience and hold that audience. And I think that kind of going forward from that, that perspective, they're constantly going to be trying to innovate and constantly going to be trying to grow their ranks. And so when they are kicked off of mainstream social media, they are going to, you know, they're going to go to platforms like Telegram. And then when they start to be kicked off of platforms like Telegram, you know, as something that's been happening a little bit recently with several, you know, very extreme white supremacist communities are going to go to parts of the decentralized web. And I think, you know, you have aspects around that, uh, whether it's sort of more peer-to-peer networking, as well as possibly going more into the dark web. What I am hopeful for about that is that as each of these deplatformings happen, they do lose key audiences. There are people who don't follow them to that next platform. People like getting propaganda on platforms where they feel comfortable that are easy to use, that they use normally in their life, whether that's YouTube or Twitter or Facebook. It becomes more difficult uh, if you have to, you know, specifically use like more um, decentralized web platforms. Not everyone is going to make that jump. And so, I mean, what's helpful about that is that then that decreases, you know, the amount... Um, that's looking to be involved. Now, on the other hand, it makes it a lot more difficult uh, to sort of see what's really going on there. I think also is going to be, I think, multi-tiered messaging 
from sort of conspiracy-based movements, from extremist groups, where it might be that they decide that they, you know, they really do want to have a presence on Telegram. And so they're going to target their messaging on Telegram in a specific way and then have that messaging be different on another platform. You know, that is easier for them to exchange very damaging propaganda, to engage individuals in conversation, things like that. So I think that kind of going forward, the kind of that online ecosystem, you know, it will certainly look different. It's really kind of moving towards more encryption, moving towards decentralization, and really moving away from from those larger sites. At the same time, there, again, is the potential that they will try and kind of maintain a a foothold in sort of the the regular internet. That's very well um, articulated. Thank you. Just a connected point, the role of artificial intelligence and deep fakes in the future of this type of propaganda, do you see that already creeping into this year? You know, those are two technologies that I haven't really seen in my specific field. The potential from both is incredibly concerning. And I think that with the democratization of technology going, you know, as time moves on, there are aspects of both of these that could eventually find their way into kind of like the broader right-wing extremist ecosystem. It's also something that would be, you know, would certainly be useful if people were sort of given uh, the tools initially to build off of. And again, I mean, the way that extremists will exploit whatever technological systems are are available um, in order to recruit, fundraise, spread propaganda, create fear. So I think that the fact that the fact that I haven't encountered any of this yet uh, doesn't make me feel any better <laughs> because I feel that in to a certain extent, um, it could only be a matter of time before these systems are um, seen more often and become not necessarily commonplace, but certainly part of that broader online extremist environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, um, well, we've certainly seen it is um, it is an evolving uh, and kind of moving target in, in so many respects. I guess it's a case of, of watching that space and, and trying to anticipate and be one step ahead, which um, proven itself, I think, to be quite a challenge for policymakers. Joshua, uh, I want to thank you very, very much for joining us and for sharing your thoughts and your knowledge and experience on this uh, really important topic. So thank you very much, Joshua, for your time. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion. Please don't forget to like, comment on, and share this episode. You can find out more about Fighting Terror and the Counter-Extremism Project on Twitter using our handle at Fight Extremism and on the homepage of our website.